Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. And we're live. What's up? Uh, not much, to be honest. How are you feeling? No, I'm, I'm feeling good, but yeah. not much is up. That's true. You know what I mean? Just feeling a little slap happy over there? Yeah, I don't know. We've we've had a weird day. <laughs> weird day. We're in crunch time. We're, we're going to be doing a lot of traveling starting tomorrow. We're taking a really, really late slash early red eye. So it's going to be yeah. super fun. But, but on the bright side, when this episode comes out, do you know where we're going to be? New York. Yeah. And do you know what that means? We're going to be very close to Teresa Caputo. <laughs> Oh my god this woman the long island medium i did not know she existed but it's such a blessing it's so funny i thought that everyone knew who the long island medium was and then i asked you if you knew her and you told me no and i just had a field day so i don't know her personally when people are when people ask me hey oh you're from long island do you know blank i'm like you know it's a very long island it's, it's yeah, very like, big dude it could be its own state like easily yeah. Definitely, yeah. Puts it's very Rhode big. Island to shame. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know how big Rhode Island is, but it, she's she's small, right? You know. But yeah, I mean, this woman is just such a unique character. The hair, the accent, the way she talks to people. She gives very Long Island. If you don't, if you, if you are not familiar with the Long Island medium, look her up. She's a good time. <laughs> she's a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, shall we move into the story this week? Let's move in, but it's intense it from what is. I've heard. Yes. So I wanted to let us know at the top that this story starts out very intense. We're not going to ease into this one. We're just jumping right in at the top. I also wanted to give a quick trigger warning. Um, there will be a brief discussion of suicide as well as domestic violence. On July 23rd, 2013, at 11.30 p.m. in Davis County, Utah, 22-year-old mother of two, Tiffany Mead, dialed 911. 911, what is the address of your emergency? I'm in front of Davis High School. Okay, what's, what's going on there? My neck's bleeding. I need help quick. What happened? I tried to commit suicide. Please help me. All right. And I just need to ask a few questions, okay? Did, what okay. did you use? Do you still have the knife with you? No, I threw it out the window. How much are you bleeding? A lot. My shirt is soaked. What's your name? Tiffany Mead. Okay. Is anybody with you, Tiffany? Yeah, we're my husband and my son. Okay. Where's your husband? Can I talk to him? Are you there? Yeah. Okay. Is he sitting down? Yeah. Do you have a dry clean cloth that you can apply pressure to her neck? I got my shirt, so... Well, we need something. Are you applying pressure? Yeah, she has her hand on her throat. Okay, do you know why she, why she did this? I don't know. And what did she use to cut her? She said she threw it out the window, did she? Uh, knife. Okay, where's the knife right now? Somewhere down in a bully or something. Is there an op... You let me know when an officer shows up. Okay, we see a lot. Wave your arms and honk your horn. Honk your horn. Is she still conscious yeah. and breathing? Okay. Okay, are they there? Yeah, the ambulance is right here. Okay, I'll let you go. Thank you. Oh my God, that's intense, but so strange to me. 
that her son and husband are in the car with her? Yeah. She told the 911 operator for the Davis County Sheriff's Office that she had tried to commit suicide. She said that her neck was bleeding and she needed help quick. And when she was asked if there was anyone else there with her, she told the operator that her husband and her son were in the car with her. So the operator asked to speak with Tiffany's husband and immediately she could tell that something was off. If what Tiffany had claimed was the case, why would she be the one calling 911 and not her husband? It was very strange. Yeah, uh, the more I think about it, the more strange it is. Also, he sounds not distressed. Unconcerned, yeah. Yeah, he's like almost annoyed at the questions that she was asking him. Yeah, when the operator asked if he had a dry clean cloth to put on Tiffany's neck to slow the bleeding, he sounded confused and said he had his shirt. But he said it like, well, I got my shirt. I know, yeah. You know, like annoyed. Right. But before that, he hadn't done anything to help her. She was still actively bleeding from this wound. And after a few seconds, the operator asked again if Chris was applying pressure, and he responded that yes, Tiffany had her hand on her throat. So even still, he wasn't the one applying pressure. It was Tiffany. You're not getting it, are you? Yeah. Almost immediately, it was clear to this operator that Tiffany's husband didn't seem very worried at all, and she began to wonder if this had actually been a suicide attempt. She asked Chris, Tiffany's husband, if he knew why Tiffany had done this, and he responded that he didn't know. But thankfully, officers arrived on the scene quickly. When police got there, they took Tiffany out of the car and immediately began tending to her. First responder Jason Sorensen said, quote, I knew she was in really bad shape. It was a really severe wound. It was straight across her neck all the way. Sergeant Bob Thompson took Chris out of the car as well, and as he was doing that, he saw that there was blood on the outside of the car on the passenger side door. Sergeant Thompson knew that he was responding to what had been called in as a suicide attempt, so he immediately thought to himself, what am I looking at here? How did this blood get on the outside of the car? As all of this was going on, the baby was crying in the back seat. One of the firemen went to retrieve the baby out of the car, and Tiffany watched in horror as they took her baby out of the car because she believed they were going to hand her son off to Chris. She immediately blurted out, Don't let him take my baby. He's the one who did this to me. I didn't do this. Wow. Immediately, Chris was put into the backseat of a cop car, and Tiffany was taken into the ambulance. So Chris was taken into custody and brought in for questioning, because at this point, it was a he-said-she-said situation. It was still pretty unclear what actually happened, and if Tiffany did actually attempt suicide or if Chris did that to her. Dr. Sheila Garvey, the Ogden Regional Hospital emergency room doctor who treated Tiffany Mead, was also struck by the severity of her wound, noting most self-inflicted stab wounds are not as bad. She was in critical condition. This wound just about cut her head off. Dr. Garvey knew that there was no way she could have done that to herself, and not that deep. Tiffany's wound was so severe, in fact, that police at the scene were also questioning whether it had really been a suicide attempt. The detective learned Tiffany and her husband had first met up at a secluded park a mile away, where investigators found a second scene. Because of that, they knew that this must have happened outside of the car and before Tiffany started driving. 
It didn't make sense that a woman who cut herself and was severely injured would get into her car and drive. But Sergeant Thompson still didn't know what kind of crime he was dealing with, if any. They were almost definitely dealing with an attempted murder, but there was still a possibility that this could have been an attempted suicide. And at that point, Sergeant Thompson didn't know Tiffany's condition, so whoever did this could have succeeded. Chris Ertman, Tiffany's husband, was in custody at the time, but he hadn't been officially arrested. He had been photographed and his clothes were taken as evidence before Thompson wanted to hear what he had to say about the situation. Chris Ertman worked for a painting contractor. He and his wife had been married five years and had two children, two-year-old Noah and Wyatt, who was almost four years old. Tiffany had recently filed for divorce from Chris and had only agreed to meet up with him that night. That way, he could give her a child support check. In the interrogation room, Sergeant Thompson asked Chris why he was here. And Chris responded, quote, Well, she tried to commit suicide, and I helped her out. And, and basically helped her out. I tried to save her. I assisted in saving her. What? Yeah, super clear. <laughs> Makes a ton of sense. You helped her, and then you assisted her. Yeah, he assisted in saving her by not calling 911 and not holding the t-shirt onto her also neck. Also sounding annoyed. Yes. He told Sergeant Thompson that they had exchanged a few words before she put the knife up to her neck and slit her own throat. He also explained that Tiffany had been taking antidepressants and had a history of being suicidal. But it wasn't adding up because people don't typically commit suicide that way. It especially didn't make sense that a mother would do that in front of her own child. Yeah, I was going to say that too. It just doesn't make any sense that she would do it in front of other people, let alone in front of her kid. Yeah, I mean, that's a very severe way to do something like that and the fact that she would do that in front of her child like it just did not add up it was not making any sense yeah i mean i i guess it's possible but yeah it just definitely does not match any pattern i would imagine right when sergeant thompson asked for specifics about what happened chris said that he couldn't remember and he really didn't want to talk about it anymore so, well, uh, you're going to have to talk, buddy. Yeah, so at that point, he's not looking very good because how could he not remember if it only happened a few short hours ago? Throughout questioning, Chris also never asked how Tiffany was doing, nor did he ask where his child was. So at that point, he was arrested and charged with attempted murder. Sergeant Thompson's boss and partner on the case was Lieutenant Jen Daly, at that time, she was at the hospital and was able to get a statement from Tiffany as she arrived in critical condition. Tiffany told Daly that she only agreed to meet Chris because he told her the only way he would give her his child support check would be if they did it in person. Their relationship had been so toxic that they mostly communicated by text, and he stressed to Tiffany not to bring anyone and actually made a point to tell her multiple times that she had to come alone. But at the last minute, Tiffany texted him that she would have to bring their two-year-old, Noah. Chris had picked out a remote park for them to meet at, and the two parked and met between their two cars. Tiffany had been terrified at the time. She said Chris had this look. It seemed like he was very determined as he walked up to her, and she didn't know what he was going to do, but she felt like he was going to do something. 
But suddenly, he grabbed her in a bear hug and backed her up against her car door. As he held one hand over her mouth, she saw Chris pull something out of his pocket before he slit her throat. And as he was slitting her throat, he told her, Shh, don't scream, stay calm. She did as he said and didn't scream, but she told him she was getting dizzy, so he opened her car for her so that she could sit. He then told her, You know what I want, say it. So she told him, I love you, and I'll get back with you. Tiffany had separated from Chris and was looking to divorce him after enduring months of emotional abuse. Five years earlier, the couple met online while Tiffany was in high school and Chris was in the army. At the time, Tiffany thought Chris was really sweet, and their relationship escalated very quickly when only six weeks after meeting, the two eloped. And not long after that, they were parents. However, things changed drastically when Chris returned from his deployment in Iraq. He had completely changed and became emotionally abusive and very volatile. He would change on the drop of a dime. Little things would make him extremely angry. He never hit her, but she lived in fear of his outbursts. She stayed so long because she was scared of raising her kids on her own. But in late 2012, Tiffany had finally had enough and fled with her two boys. She moved in with her parents and moved on with her life. She got a full-time job, started attending college at night, and even started dating a new guy. Which Chris obviously didn't take well. Whenever they would talk, he would tell Tiffany to come back to him because she wasn't going to be able to do it by herself. So flash forward to that night. Chris wanted Tiffany back. And if he couldn't have her, then nobody could. Chris told Tiffany that the only way he would allow her to get help was if they got back together. He's a fucking maniac. After she told him she loved him, he then said, seal it with a kiss. He leaned in and kissed her as blood was pouring out of her neck. Like a true lunatic. He then told her that they had to come up with a story if she was going to call 911. So she told him she would say whatever he wanted her to say. Tiffany said, quote, I knew that what he just did to me could kill me, but the only thing I could think of was I had to get my baby to safety. Dying wasn't an option. So she wasn't even thinking about herself in that moment. She's thinking about, I need to get help because I need my son to get to safety. She knew that she needed to get out of that remote park because one, she wanted to get her baby to safety, and two, she needed to be able to explain to the dispatcher where she was. The two got into Tiffany's car with Tiffany behind the wheel. She managed to drive with one hand on the steering wheel and the other holding the blood pouring out of her wound. When she made it to a bus stop, she pulled over to the side of the road where Chris finally allowed her to dial 911. And as soon as there were sheriffs between her and Chris, she let them know that Chris was the one who did that to her. Lying in the ambulance near death, Tiffany called her mother. She told her that Chris had tried to kill her and she needed her to pick up Noah. After hanging up, looking up at the lights, Tiffany thought to herself that it was finally over. Noah was safe and now she could die. Thankfully, as we know, that didn't happen. But throughout that entire terrible, brutal attack, the only thing on her mind was her son. And even when she was in the ambulance, she prioritized her son and called her mother to pick him up and then she was okay with dying 
I can't even wrap my head around that kind of selflessness and love that yeah. she was feeling, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's tearing me up. I mean, that's just so fucked up. But as much as police believed Tiffany's story, they had a problem. Because things weren't as clear-cut as detectives thought. That night, they were in a pretty remote area, which meant that nobody saw or heard anything. So it was Tiffany's word against Chris's. And they didn't even have the knife that was used. Jen Daly believed that as Tiffany drove down the dark road holding her neck, Chris tossed the knife out of the window into a deep ravine. Police searched the ravine that they believed Chris discarded the knife in, and they used metal detectors, cadaver dogs, anything they could to uncover it because they were hoping his DNA or fingerprints would be on the knife. Anything they could use as physical evidence. Because without it, proving someone is guilty beyond reasonable doubt is extremely difficult. They were worried that without more evidence, jurors might conclude this was an aggravated assault, not an attempted murder, which meant that Chris Ertman could be out of prison in only a year. Even worse than not finding the knife, a month after the attack, the judge for their case received an unsigned letter that read, quote, I am a good friend of Tiffany, but I can't see letting this happen to Chris for his kid's sake. It went on to explain that Tiffany had cut her own throat and was trying to frame Chris Ertman, which was exactly what he had told police. This was bad, because they had to take it as if it could be credible. The return address on the letter was from a Mary Olson, who lived on Monroe Street in Ogden, Utah, but after looking into the address, detectives soon discovered that it didn't exist. It also seemed as if Mary Olson didn't exist either. Sergeant Thompson ran the driver's license of every Mary Olson in the state of Utah who was around the same age group as Tiffany and Chris, and nothing came up. Tiffany also said that she didn't know anyone named Mary at the time. So it was pretty clear that Chris was behind the letter, but Davis County attorneys Richard Larson and Jason Nelson needed proof to tie Chris to the letter to make any kind of attempted murder case against him. As far as the prosecution was concerned, they were convinced that he had inflicted the injury. However, the big question was, what was his intent when he did it? And the whole case was basically riding on that one question. Was Chris Ertman actually trying to kill his estranged wife or scare her through injuring her? The defense could argue that Ertman never actually wanted Tiffany to die since he let her call 911 and gave her his shirt to stop the bleeding, which could have led to an aggravated assault charge instead of attempted murder. Isn't that messed up? Yeah, I mean, this is weird, because it's like, I get that you need to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's probably how it should be, but the fact that his intent matters so much and has such a big impact on his sentence is kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they could argue he didn't actually want her to die, he just wanted to scare her, is so messed up. He almost cut her head off. Yeah, I know. It's, I don't know, it's hard to me to make the argument that he was just trying to scare her by nearly decapitating her. Like, when you cut somebody's throat like that, that's where your two main arteries are, right? Yeah. Up and down, right? Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I, I'm not a medical person. I would but imagine I one goes in, one comes out. There's definitely know. an artery in your neck. <laughs> I know that much. Yeah. 
But this is what they were worried that the defense would do if they didn't have hard physical evidence, not just circumstantial evidence. And Lieutenant Jen Daly could not let that happen. She was incredibly angry. She couldn't begin to wrap her head around what type of human would do that, let alone in front of their child, and then walk free only a year later. And there was a huge concern that if Chris Ertman was released, he would do it again. I mean, he was clearly dangerous. So, oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, Lieutenant Daly knew the only way to keep Tiffany safe was by making sure Chris stayed locked up. She decided to start listening to every phone call Chris Ertman made while he was in jail. She knew it was very possible that nothing would come of this at all since the phone calls being recorded is something every inmate is warned about repeatedly. But if there was a chance he was going to incriminate himself, she was going to find it. Best case scenario would be a confession. Jen Daly said, So I listened and I listened some more and I listened some more after that. She listened to hundreds of phone calls and watched endless jailhouse visits. Her colleagues thought she was crazy after a while. People would come into her office and tell her they couldn't believe she was still listening in on Chris Ertman. And by a certain point, she would respond saying she couldn't believe it either. She'd rather stick pencils in her ears than keep listening. With nothing to show for it, after three months, she finally gave up. But even after all of that, her gut was telling her to keep listening. She couldn't shake the feeling that she was going to find something, so she picked up where she left off. She had gotten up to his December 2013 calls, which were made five months after the attack. On a call from December 11th, 2013, Chris was on the phone with his father. He instructed his father to write down a name, Raymond something, I don't have his last name. He then told his father to tell Kenny to Facebook message him to tell him that he was in jail. Lieutenant Daly had no idea if this Raymond person had any kind of significance, but she wrote down his name on a yellow sticky pad and continued listening. Over the next few weeks, when Chris would talk to his father, he continually asked if Kenny had reached out to quote-unquote that dude on Facebook. And it was clear that Chris was pretty eager to get in contact with this Raymond person. On December 20th, 2013, he asked his mother to send him that dude's address so they could write him a letter. His mother asked what this person's name was again, and he responded saying, Dad has it written down. So he didn't want to say his name again. Chris only mentioned Raymond's name once throughout all of his calls, but that was all she needed. She said she remembers looking at her sticky pad still with the name written on it. She pulled it off, and with it stuck to her index finger, she walked down the hallway to Sergeant Thompson's office and told him that she needed him to find this guy immediately. It turned out this Raymond was a former inmate at the jail Chris was being held in, and the two lived in the same cell block for a time. He had served time on a methamphetamine possession charge and was now out on probation. When Sergeant Thompson tracked him down, they got him to agree to talk with the detectives on camera. Immediately, they felt like Raymond was credible. He was kind of a character in the way he answered questions, almost as if he had nothing to hide. Although, something changed in Raymond when they brought up Chris Ertman. They asked if he had known Chris during his time in jail. He told them yes, but Chris was a quiet guy. When they asked if he ever talked about the situation that Chris was in with his ex-wife, Raymond told them that he had. At first, Raymond didn't want to tell them what Chris had said because 
what happened in jail stayed in jail. But Lieutenant Daly saw an opening and decided to try to appeal to Raymond's conscience. She told him there was a time to do what's right, and this is one of those moments. And miraculously, he agreed. So he told them that in jail, Chris had fully admitted his guilt to him. He flat out told Raymond that he was the one who cut Tiffany's throat. Not only that, but Raymond told them about a handwritten letter that Ertman gave him to copy once he got out of jail. The letter would be sent to the judge on the case that said it was from Chris's wife and admitting that she lied and that the allegations were false which sounded a lot like the letter they had gotten from Mary Olson, whoever that was, which they believed Chris was behind, but they couldn't prove it. They asked him if he could possibly find the letter Chris had written, because if they had that, they could charge him with obstruction of justice. Sergeant Thompson then asked Raymond if Chris ever asked him to do anything to Tiffany, and reluctantly, he said yes. Raymond told them that Chris had asked if he, quote, had the connections to arrange for bad things to happen to her, her death specifically, meaning he wanted to put out a hit on his ex-wife. I mean, just the low that this guy can sink to. I can't believe Raymond's confessing all this. Yeah, it was shocking. It was only until you're pressed about it. Yeah, Lieutenant Daly was basically like, now's the time to be, to do the right thing. And yeah. He agreed, which is very lucky. I mean, in a way, he probably saved Tiffany's life. He definitely did. He 100% did. Ertman reportedly told Raymond he could pay a hitman $25,000 to murder his wife, which is when the detectives knew that they had a much bigger issue on their hands. Although it was also an opportunity for the police, because if they could prove that Chris Ertman was looking to put a hit out on Tiffany, they could charge him with solicitation to commit aggravated murder, which would potentially ensure that he would stay behind bars for the rest of his life. Their first step was warning Tiffany, because they weren't sure if he had already put out a hit with someone else. Warn her? Why wouldn't you just put her into witness protection or something? It's like protective custody. Yeah. Like, oh, heads up, there's a hit out on you. Sleep tight. Potentially. I mean, that's kind of how it was. With no help, what is she going to do? You know, she's got kids. Yeah. Like, you have to sleep. I'm sure she wasn't doing a lot of that, you know? No, but I mean, eventually you have to. It's not like you can protect yourself at all times if somebody has enough resources and is determined enough. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely how Tiffany was feeling. She was feeling very at a loss, very scared. I have to imagine that the police, at the very least, had an officer stationed outside of her house at all times, because how could they not? I mean, something. Yeah, it had to be something, because truly, they weren't sure if a hit had already been put out on her. So this was a big opportunity, but also, I guess it's a good thing they were ahead of it if there had been a hit put out on her, but it's just all very intense and very scary. The next step was to send Raymond into the jail to visit with Chris through the jail's video conference system. They wanted Ertman on tape telling Raymond to send the letter to the judge and, more importantly, trying to order a hit. And luckily for the police, Raymond did find the original letter that Chris had given him. And through handwriting analysis, it was confirmed that Chris had written the letter. Did they fingerprint it too? I mean, probably. I don't know if there was fingerprints on it, but through his handwriting analysis, they knew it was him. So that's good. 
That's one charge right there. So on tape, police had Raymond saying to Chris that he had the letter ready to send to the judge and Chris telling him that he should do that. So that right there got him an obstruction charge, but that wasn't enough. After telling Chris he'd send the letter to the judge, he also told him he still had a guy to help him get that work he needed done. Surprisingly, Chris told him he couldn't do it at that time. Raymond asked if Chris wanted him to negotiate a little bit and see what the guy could do, but again, Chris told him he had to wait on it. So without the green light from Chris, prosecutors didn't have enough for the solicitation charge, and they used up their source, aka Raymond. Lieutenant Daly was devastated, but she wasn't going to let it end there, because of course she wasn't. This woman was determined. Yeah, nothing's stopping her. She was... (laughs) How, I mean, how many hours of tape did she listen to? I mean, hours upon hours upon hours, like multiple weeks of back-to-back Chris Ertman conversations. Just when everything seemed hopeless, out of the blue, Lieutenant Daly heard from a quote-unquote old friend who was a jailhouse informant who had given her information in the past. This inmate was back in the county jail and happened to be in the same cell block as Chris Ertman. So he told Daly that he had information he was willing to trade for help with his case. Daly told him no, because she wasn't going to make a deal with a criminal, and she knew how unreliable this particular inmate could be. One minute he had amazing information, and the next minute he screws you. But he knew specific details about Tiffany's attack. And he said that Chris was trying to get him to hire someone to kill Tiffany. Lieutenant Daly knew this was serious because if anyone could get that set up, it was this informant. He was definitely a bad guy, and Daly said the last person you'd want to meet up in an alley was him. So their next step was to set up a sting and arrange for Chris to be introduced, quote-unquote, to a hitman who was actually an undercover cop. This undercover cop they referred to by Jim Kelly. At the time, Kelly was working in narcotics and knew how to deal with informants. The plan was set in motion when they sent Kelly to visit this informant at the jail. The informant had told Chris he was meeting with a hitman who could help him out, and on the video of the meeting between the informant and Kelly, you can see Chris in the background behind their jailhouse informant. The informant then told Chris to come up to him, and Chris can be seen handing over a piece of paper to this inmate, who then shows it to Jim Kelly. Written on the paper was Tiffany's address where she had been currently staying. But Chris never actually said a word in this video. And although it was something, it wasn't enough to bring these new charges. The criminal act is the solicitation to have her killed. And just because he provided the address of his victim, it wasn't enough. They needed him to confirm on camera that his ex-wife was the target. It's so insane to me that there's this many hoops they need to jump through. Like, they could not have been more clear. I I don't know, to me at least. He's handing over the address of his ex-wife to who he believes is a hitman. And they're like, it's it's not enough. (laughs) They need him to say it. I mean, it's honestly amazing that they convict anyone. But I'm, I'm just thinking he just keeps going right up to the line, but not over. Yeah. But, I mean, he's going to cross it one of these times. Yeah. They just were I very, hope. very determined. 
Detectives met with Tiffany and updated her about this latest threat and asked her to pose for staged photos to look like surveillance photos taken by this hitman. For the photos, they filled up some bags and she got into her car and then got out and carried the bags up to her house as if she had just gotten home from grocery shopping. Jim Kelly then headed back to the jailhouse with these photos, but that's when they hit a bump in the road. Their notoriously unreliable inmate informant wanted a deal and refused to cooperate any further unless he was released from jail. He wanted the, he, he went for the sky, you know? He's like, reach for the stars. He's a shitty guy. Yeah. And he's playing his canned. Yeah. It was a really big ask, but they were definitely not going to allow that. So instead of dealing with that, they removed this snitch from the cell block immediately, although they still felt like everything had been ruined because they were convinced their informant had already tipped off Chris. Jen Daly was still determined and instructed Jim Kelly to still go in, but this time he'd only visit with Chris. Kelly laughed at her because he thought there was no way that was going to work. But at that point, she didn't care. They just had to try. Six days after the first visit, Jim Kelly walked back into the visitor's entrance of the jail asking to see Chris Ertman. These visits were through glass, and they would talk to each other by picking up phones in their little cubicle, and there was also a small video camera recording their entire conversation. So they weren't sure that Chris would even answer the phone. But to their surprise, he did. Jim Kelly, posing as the hitman, started talking to Chris. He said he had a few photos he wanted to run by him, and then showed Chris two of the stage photos of Tiffany and asked if this was the correct person. And Chris said yes. Kelly then said, quote, what the informant was telling me was, you know, make it happen. Chris said, yeah, yeah, just, you know, have fun. He told an undercover cop to have fun while he killed Tiffany. That was probably enough, but just to really put the nail in the coffin, Jim Kelly then said, and you're saying all the way, right? Basically asking him if he means he wanted her dead instead of just injured. And again, Chris Ertman said, yeah, have fun. I mean, I'm speechless. Have fun murdering the mother of my two children? Yep. Twice. Yeah. He really rubbed it in there. He's like, yeah, just have fun. Like what? You're going to the park? Right. This is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Kelly asked when Chris wanted this done by, and he responded, whenever you can, but the sooner the better. Kelly then told him the cost of business would be $5,000, and Chris agreed. Jim Kelly had Googled what the going rate for murder for hire was and found that number. So they used $5,000, which I thought was kind of ridiculous. They literally just put into Google, what do people pay to have someone killed? And they came up with 5000 That's like not a lot. I know. That's like, what, a couple months of living expenses, if that? I mean, yeah, depending on where you are. Like, he... Also, like, what list does he put on now? That's what I was thinking. I'm like, you can't go around Googling that willy-nilly, but he was a police officer and he was an undercover agent, so it's fine. But I just thought that was funny. They literally put it into Google. And Google knows. Google knows everything. So Jim Kelly finished off this call by saying, to be clear, I'm talking about, you know, there's no way to come back from it once it's done. And Chris said, I know. So there was really no misinterpreting what was going on in that conversation. When the news got back to Lieutenant Daly, she was elated. 
She and Sergeant Thompson had gone from believing the whole thing had been ruined to the best feeling ever because now they knew they could get a conviction. Although this whole operation had taken a year to get the evidence they needed, they now had enough to charge him with attempted murder, obstruction of justice, and solicitation to commit aggravated murder. He had committed more felonies in jail than he did when he was free. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah, I know. He completely put himself away for life while he was away. Yeah, in jail. Thankfully, the case never even had to go to trial. Prosecutors offered Chris Ertman a deal, and he pled no contest. He told them, yeah, I'll take blame for it. I did it. But I was not in my right mind. I'm not dangerous. Okay, buddy, you're just deluding yourself. Yeah. He told prosecution he had been suffering from PTSD. Okay, well, PTSD is real, but... People don't murder their wives or try and murder their wives or put out a hit on them. Yeah, he's just full of shit. He's just full of shit. It just makes me an extra level of angry because the the people who are suffering from actual PTSD, it's like... Yeah, it gives them a bad name. Yeah. Ridiculous. Well, I mean, not that anybody is thinking that from him, but you're trying to go off the backs of them for an illegitimate like reason. Yeah, I mean, it just goes along with every other crazy person that said, I was not in my right mind. I plead insanity, you know? Yeah, I guess I am surprised that he didn't plead insanity. That's kind of what he was doing. Well, I mean, he pled no contest. Yeah, you know? yeah, he that's He pled true. insanity, but not like legally. Yes, you know what I yeah, mean? but he did say I wasn't in my right mind. So he was kind of saying like, hey, I wasn't, you I know, I mean, you normal. would kind of hope so that you weren't in your correct mind. Yeah, but it's not going to get you out of this one. No. Prosecutor Richard Larson didn't buy the whole PTSD thing. It wasn't far-fetched to believe that he could have made that up to avoid taking accountability because Chris had no actual diagnosis. Chris's plea meant he could spend anywhere from six years to the rest of his life in prison. By Utah state law, it would be up to the Board of Pardons and Parole to decide when he would be released. Tiffany was incredibly relieved... This was the safest she had felt since everything started. And I mean, he'd been away for, for a while at that point. But even when he was in jail, she couldn't breathe. She couldn't be safe because there could have been a hit put out on her, you know? Yeah. It, I mean, I can't imagine how helpless you must feel when your attacker is in jail, but still you're not safe from them. Yeah, but also your attacker is abstract unknown and can come from anywhere at any time right i mean what more of an anxiety inducing situation can you create yeah it sounds like a nightmare yeah four years after his plea chris did appear before a parole board however jen daly made a 150 mile drive to be at the hearing in support of tiffany she said in her career she had never attended a parole hearing but she will never miss one of his She hopes to keep him there as long as possible. Thankfully, Christopher Ertman was not granted parole. The board found that he was still a risk to public safety, and his next hearing will be in June of 2029. After everything, the hardest part for Tiffany has been getting adjusted to all her new fears that most people don't even think twice about, like driving at night or the sounds of dripping water. This one is really sad to me because the sound of her blood dripping into a pool in the car sounded like dripping water. So now she has a fear of dripping water. So like every time it rains? I'm probably a slower drip than that, but maybe. I don't know. I can't say. This poor woman. I know. 
She said, I wake up every morning wondering if today is going to be the day that Chris will send someone to quote unquote, have fun killing me. I am here again, terrified, and if he's ever released, there is no doubt in my mind he will come for me and he will finish what he started. But thankfully, she has her very protective emotional support dog, Butters, at her side every step of the way, as well as her new loving husband. She considers Jen Daly her ever-present guardian angel and knows that she is a big reason that she is still alive today. Nowadays, Tiffany is focused on her family and on helping spread awareness of domestic violence so other victims can find the strength to walk away. She said, quote, I want women through my story to be able to realize that they can leave. If you suspect domestic violence, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, visit thehotline.org, or text START to 88788. All calls are toll-free and confidential. The hotline is available 24-7 in more than 170 languages. And that is the story of Tiffany Mead. Yeah, I don't know where to start on this one. It's just such a... It was such a bizarre call, and what a piece of shit. Such an eerie 911 call, like, knowing what happened. I mean, without knowing what happened, you can feel how heavy that call was, but knowing the background and the context of the situation is just even more terrifying. Yeah, and he's just sitting there being like, yeah, she's got it. I also don't know how the 911 operator does this, because... How long did that call last? Like 30 seconds? It was a minute. A minute like and a half. a minute? Yeah. A minute. It's one of the most intense conversations I've ever heard. And then mm-hmm. she just, are the police there? Oh, okay, bye. Click. How do you move on from that? I like, don't I don't know how 911 operators do it. I mean, they're you, true angels. Yeah, like, I know. I just don't know how you move on from that. And you just have to pick up another call. Yeah. And the next one is going to probably be equally as intense, if not... I don't know about that. I mean, I hope you get like a breather, you know, whatever Maybe. a breather is for a 911 Yeah, operator. but like, I mean, think about the people who are calling 911. It's the worst day of their lives most of the time. I mean, I'm sure sometimes it's like they deal with prank calls or like someone accidentally calling yeah. them, like stuff like that. But like, for the most part, the person who's calling 911 is in crisis. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't imagine doing that. Yeah. And then you have to go home and eat dinner. Yeah. You know, how do you be a person after shower? That? But Crazy. anyway, I mean, I don't know what he thought was going to happen with allowing her to call 911. I mean, thank God he did. Like, yeah, truly, because it's the only way she survived and she was pretty close to, to dying. Yeah, I'm honestly shocked that she didn't die because yeah. if he almost decapitated her, he had to have missed her artery. Is it the carotid carotid artery? Yeah. Yeah, the main one. Uh, (laughs) The big one. The big one. You know, the one that's like you bleed out in 20, 30 seconds or something like that. I mean, he must have missed that by fractions of an inch. Yeah, I think he did miss it by like a tiny, tiny little bit. Yeah, but I mean, he had to miss it or she would have died. Yeah. That was an intense story. Yes. Right off from the bat. Yeah, no, when we we went from just like small talk to that, I was like, uh uh-oh. Like, that was such a transition. Yeah, I, I always feel a little strange jumping into an intense story after we talk about something lighthearted, but, I, you know, how to... How it's do, the podcast. It's, it's tough. what we do. It's tough out here trying to figure out how to navigate talking about intense situations. But, um, yeah, I mean, Tiffany is 
incredibly brave and selfless and just incredible. I mean, the fact that she was able to convince him to let her call 911 and the entire time she's thinking about her kid. Yeah. She's not thinking about herself for a second. She's thinking about her son. I mean, I cried. It was like she got into the ambulance, knew that her son was safe, and now she can die. Yeah. That part really got me. Yeah. Calling her mom to say, take care of my son. And then she basically is like, okay, I can die. Yeah. And I mean, she has such a unique experience. Like, how many other people have been through as much as she has? Because it's not like this was the event. It was everything leading up to it and everything after that continues to this day. Yeah. Because she went through the domestic violence and then after had to fight for her life and survive and then just live in constant fear with her kids. Yeah. And still doesn't even feel safe because he was trying to put a hit on her from jail. So... I hope that she finds some balance in her life. Yeah, some and, peace. you know, gets to enjoy her husband and family. Yeah, me uh, too. Because if she does, that's an incredible feat. Yeah, and she's using her tragedy, her trauma to raise awareness to domestic violence and help other women. I mean, just incredible all around. Yeah. Truly. Um, but anyway, that is her story. Why don't we move on to something a little bit lighter? What is your good thing for the week? So my good thing for the week is that I am finally off of my acne medication. Yes. That made my face dry, lips chapped, and then I couldn't drink. And, you know, it was annoying, like constant doctor appointments. Not so really constant, many. but I mean, once pretty, a month. Pretty constant. Yeah. So that is over for now. I might have to go back on it, but um, I'm done with this course. We love it. It looks a lot better. Yeah. But I'm done and yes. I'm happy about it. Hell yeah. That's the reason to celebrate. My good thing has to be our trip to New York. It's going to be really fun. We're going to be in the city for a couple days and see some friends we haven't seen in a while. And then we go home and we're with my family for Thanksgiving. And I'm just very excited. Ooh, my second good thing is that... Part two. Part two. My grandmother, my mama... Uh, shout out mama shout out mama she had her hips replaced and the last time i saw her she couldn't even stand she was in so much pain and it was so hard to watch and i just love her so much and now she can stand and she's not in pain and i cannot wait to see her standing i mean that it's like such a small thing but i it makes me so happy like i could cry you know i know i want to tack that's that's my part too as well yeah she has such a beautiful like energy and smile when she's happy so i can't wait to see that again i know i can't wait to make her laugh so hard that she cries and has to take off her little glasses yeah (laughs) (laughs) anyway shout out mama love you um anyways thank you guys so much for listening if you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about check us out on instagram at not today underscore podcast we have a patreon where you can find exclusive bonus content as well as vote on that bonus content at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or any kind of crazy story that you want to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listener's episode, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>